Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for the week of Friday, July 17th of the year 2020. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you, finally back with you as we are here returning with an all-new episode for your listening pleasure here on the Arcade after a an initially planned short summer break and then an unplanned week away last week when our recording computer decided to be all wonky. Yeah, blue screeny as it were. Yes. Which uh, doesn't really happen much anymore, but uh, yeah. But but that's been all fixed and resolved and it's uh, uh, working well so far. Indeed, and I am, of course, the other voice on this program, as I always am. This week I'm Dennis, the man who has finally decided to start smoking. Really? At your age? Yes. Just taking up that god-awful, messy, ugly, stinky, smelly, expensive habit of smoking. Let me clarify. (laughs) What what is it? Virginia Slims? (laughs) Trying to watch your figure so you got some Virginia Slims? No, like wings and brisket. Oh, smoking meats. Yeah, there you go. With tobacco? <laughs> no. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> nice woody. Nice, uh... Carcinogen-filled uh, flavors pop. Mmm, nicotine Mmm. That's a nice char on the outside of nicotine. <laughs> See, as it's, the brown has seeped into the meat. That's a nice, that's a nice smoke ring inside. No, no, I've been... Smoking a, you know, more reasonable things like chicken wings and beef brisket and try to roast once, could try another roast another time. Um, yeah. So an actual, like, wood smoker in the backyard type thing. Yes. Excellent. Okay, yes. that is somewhat better for you <laughs> than actual smoking. Yeah. Yes. Somewhat. Well, I mean, like, it's, it's fine, like, as long as you're not eating... A whole ham at a time or something. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Depending how that smoke makes it taste, it's pretty tempting, right? It's pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> not going to lie. It's pretty damn good. There you go. Yeah. Try and not eat a whole ham. <laughs> I mean, I'll try. <laughs> and probably succeed, because that's a lot of... I don't think I could eat a whole ham. <laughs> also, ham's already smoked, so... Well, you need some nice double smoking action. <laughs> sure. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Some smoking symmetry. Do it. Yes. But uh, you are getting into this, as you uh, have mentioned. Um, what woods are you using? What's your success been? Well, so far, I've just been using... Uh, I have a couple of bags. I have one bag of maple chips, and I have a bag of cherry. I've had more success, I think, consistently with the maple chips so far. Though I'm told that oak is also very excellent. Ooh. And I want to get some hickory because, you know, that's like a classic sounding thing. Hickory smoked whatever. So, yeah. Things to try still. But, uh, yeah. Have you tried combining the woods for uh, flavor fusions? Not yet. Uh, I suppose there's, you know, the, the, the options are limitless, really. <laughs> True enough. Uh, I think... When didn't you do a big uh, slab of meat the other day you were mentioning? Yeah, I did a 15-pound brisket. That's hearty. I figured, you know, if I'm going to go overboard, I might as well go way overboard. And, uh, yeah. 
had to cut it in half because it wouldn't fit in my smoker otherwise. <laughs> that just means you need a bigger smoker. <laughs> I mean, my smoker's more than enough. <laughs> I, I was able to make enough food for, like, 12 people that came over the other day, so I figure, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. And how'd the brisket turn out? Oh, it was excellent. It was, like, literally fall apart excellent. Nice. What'd you smoke it with? The maple? Yeah, the maple. Just 24, 25 hours of maple smoking. Low and slow, as they say. Which sounds lame to say, but it's true. Now your whole life, is that's going to be your mantra. Low and slow for everything. Low and slow. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have to say it like that, too. Oh, yeah, low and slow. <laughs> Respect to meat. <laughs> Don't rush the heat. <laughs> These are all sayings that will, you will eventually have on barbecue aprons. God, I hope not. <laughs> for I will see to it that you have them on barbecue oh, aprons. God. <laughs> I will find you a reversible barbecue apron with a stupid saying on either side. <laughs> one about low and slow, and then... Don't rush the heat. <laughs> yes. Another one that simply just says, you know, kiss the chef. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That one reverses to say, kiss my ass. <laughs> because, you know, I'm also edgy. Ooh. <laughs> oh, you're one of those new age edgy smokers. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Millennials. Good God. Ruining everything. Yes. <laughs> Millennials have ruined this nice cut of meat with smoke. Wait. No, they haven't. Never mind. Oh, my God. They've made it better. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> my taste buds are popping. I love it. Yes. Have you tried smoking bacon yet? <laughs> no. Not yet. I've been, you know, I've basically hit upon the fact that chicken wings are basically can't fail in a smoker. Like, they're excellent every single time. So that is, I think, quickly becoming the go-to. But, uh, yeah, definitely have lots of ideas. Want to try, you know, smoking some vegetables and stuff. I actually did smoke some vegetables. Didn't quite smoke them for long enough. But uh, they turned out pretty good, too. And, uh, yeah, like. I've seen things online for, like, smoked corn and whatnot, which would probably be very interesting. Have you tried smoking cheese? No, not yet. That would, I'm sure, depending on the cheese. Yeah, like, I'm told that if you get, like, just some mozzarella and smoke that or gouda or something, it would be pretty nice. So Now you're living. Oh, yeah. That is an exotic, uh, that's an exotic way to do a charcuterie, too. Yes, just... A fancy man's charcuterie. Make a regular charcuterie and then put the entire thing in the smoker... And then, brother, you got yourself a charcuterie. (laughs) So this uh, podcast has quickly become uh, Smoker's Corner with uh, Mike and Dennis. Yep, this is uh, is a thing. Yep, Uh, don't rush the heat, Smoker's Corner. (laughs) Uh, Which, you know, obviously our theme song would be a parody of that propagandi song, Dear Coach's Corner. Which I'm sure they wouldn't approve of at all because we're talking about smoking things and anyways. I was thinking some kind of Stevie Ray Stevie Ray Vaughn ripoff. <laughs> it's my pride and joy. 
<laughs> he was talking about a slab of meat in yes, the smoker. Of course he was. It was just, he's from Texas. It was a brisket. It makes all the sense in the world. Why did no one ever see this before? <laughs> oh, man. But yeah. So, excellent. I uh, look forward to uh, hearing more of your smoking adventures in the uh, days and weeks and months. Well, a few months left in smoke. Have you tried smoking in winter yet? I just got the smoker this year. Oh, so. that's right, too. So, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I haven't. Well, well, I will. It is essentially just like an entirely enclosed oven that just has smoke in it. So, I suppose there's nothing stopping me from using it in the winter. I wonder if you would have to add an extra layer of insulation around the box. I don't know. Like, I think it's pretty well insulated as it is. Like, when I touch it, it's not particularly hot outside or anything. So, I guess we'll see. I'll try it. Some nice warm smoked meat for those cold winter nights. Yeah. Just for you, no one else. <laughs> no one else. No sharing. <laughs> this is daddy's meat. <laughs> Gross. So let's move off the smoke talk and uh, turn our attention now to other silly things. Yes. Uh, which uh, normally at this point in the program is the ludicrous leadoffs. Those extra news items that have come across the wire that are just an extra special kind of special. They have that added layer smoke ring inside of silliness. Yes, to bring it back to that stuff that we were just talking about 10 minutes ago. Y- yes. Just 30 seconds ago. Yes, 30 seconds ago. Four 10 minutes. In case you forgot what we were talking about, I will uh, circle it back, tie it all together in a nice, neat bow. Uh, the ludicrous leadoffs, which uh, these two are not meat-related. If you are going to uh, tune us out as a result of that, I fully understand. We uh, enjoyed your company for however brief it was. Absolutely. They are video game-related, which is... Normally the M.O. of this program, hence the title of it being The Arcade and how I introduced it as being your video game podcast. Uh, our first ludicrous leadoff is uh, an interesting one, a kind of an idea we have had, we've seen before, of people releasing games in physical copies for old, defunct systems. But most often when we see it, it is for... Uh, systems with a lot of nostalgia attached to them, uh, be they 8-bit, be they 16-bit, and most often they are some kind of very limited, very special edition run with a collector's element to it. Yeah, I mean, this is most, I mean, in my recent memory, I mean, there's been a lot of old NES, particularly NES games that I remember. Uh, like, the one that always pops into my head, I don't remember exactly what it was called. It was a Russian roulette game where you played against um, a cowboy that had a bunch of recorded speech, but it was basically Russian roulette that used the zapper for the NES. I think it was released to like 500 copies kind of thing, but yeah, that kind of thing where it's like, unless you got in on the Kickstarter or whatever, you're SOL. So you, if you didn't get that, you're, you're, that's it. But yeah, like these very nostalgic kind of systems, like a lot of like appeal there, like, but also they're old, so I mean, the longer things are around, the more people remember them from wherever, and you know, like, yeah. Which is why this one is kind of surprising to me in a way, because I don't feel nostalgic towards this, because I was an adult, like, I was already an adult by the time this was released, and uh yeah. But I, I suppose that it was also released 14 years ago, so it's possible that there were people who were children that were playing this as their first means of video games who are now seeing this, who would be adults now. And 
they might be nostalgic towards it. So it's kind of wild to think that uh, there might be people who were children at the time that this system was was released and may have never really experienced it or just kind of it was perhaps their first experience into video gaming. Uh, this uh, the story we're talking about is the fact that uh, the game Shakedown Hawaii is going to be released in a physical copy for the Nintendo Wii and also the Nintendo Wii U. Now, now should clarify that the releases are exclusively in Europe, uh, simply because as the uh, development studio uh, went on to say, they had a lot of help in having this crazy idea come to fruition by the people at Nintendo of Europe. Yeah, because... I would imagine it would be kind of difficult to do this on your own without the support of them. A little bit, yes. Uh, considering that uh, these systems really, I mean, they're old, but they're not nostalgic levels of old. So I don't know if the technology and systems to go outside official channels is really established yet. But again, yeah, maybe they are nostalgic levels of old. That's what I'm getting at, because 14 years is enough time for someone to have been seven years old playing it and now be 21, right? True, very like, true. Or 15 years old playing it, and now be close to 30. This is true. And I, I, I'm also just being uh, reminded of the fact that this program started 14 years ago. Yeah. Before the Wii came out, it started in the uh, early part of uh, 2006. Yeah, maybe that's why we're having a hard time feeling nostalgic for it, but maybe people are nostalgic for our early days. Who knows? That would be a weird thing to think. It would be. I I won't put it past people. This is 2020. Anything is possible. Nothing makes sense anymore. (laughs) Stop trying to understand the world as it exists around you. Just take it for what it's worth. Yes. Exactly. That's the only way to stay sane. Yes. That and smoked meats. (laughs) Yes. You're welcome. Uh, So the... Uh, Game Shakedown Hawaii being released by V-Blank Entertainment on both Wii and Wii U. The Wii version supporting both 50 hertz and 60 hertz, uh, and has output or, uh, yeah, has output on both NTSC and PAL, and supports the Wii Remote, Wii Classic Controller, Wii Classic Controller Pro, and GameCube Controller. Uh, as for the Wii U version, it supports both SD and HD, 4x3 aspect ratio, and 16x9 aspect ratio. You can play it on the Wii U GamePad, Wii U Pro Controller, Wii Remote, Wii Classic Controller, or Wii Classic Controller Pro. Uh, it can also be played entirely on the GamePad with touch, or on the TV from the comfort of your couch. And again, this is not something that's widely available in North America. Uh, if you have channels and access to European outlets, European stores, uh, you can certainly look for it through those means. The Wii version uh, came out on July 9th, so it's already out. And if this is something that is uh, piquing your interest, I'd recommend you look into it now because it's limited to a run of 3,000 copies. So act on that sooner than later. The Wii U version is going to come out later in August, but the Wii, uh, the Wii version is already out, as I said. And you can find more info as we have a link to the product page for this on the uh, company's website located on our website of the arcade show.com. So if you want to add to your Wii collection, a game that is not just dance 2020, 
or something else because Ubisoft has kept on releasing those Just Dance games for the Wii. Not the Wii U, but the Wii. Yeah. Are they still actually doing that? I don't think they are actually anymore. They were up until a couple of years ago. Yeah. I think they might still be, but... Because, I mean, like, they're, they, they'll they, release whatever is viable, right? Like, if it's still selling, they'll release it, but I think it might have dried up a couple of years ago. I mean, even still, if it only dried up a couple of years ago... It's still crazy. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. say if it went up until 2016 or 2017. Yeah, that's still, like, 11 years on one system, like... That really doesn't happen very often. No, no, it doesn't. Or ever, I should and say. many years after the Wii had really been a viable system. Yeah. But, um, like, we talk about, like, the, the sliding scale of nostalgia. Like, obviously, the older you get, the older things have to be for you to feel nostalgic for them. Like, we don't really feel nostalgic for the Wii because, as we said, we were already adults by the time it came out. Like, I think you bought it after, st- like... I bought it first day. Like first day, like you waited in line, you were part of that whole zoo when it happened, and yeah, I remember. I, I was late for a very important work engagement that day. Yeah. It was frowned upon. I didn't care. Yeah. But yeah, like, we have adult-sounding stories surrounding these things, like, not like adult situations or anything like that, but you know, work. I had to go to work, but I was late for work because I had to go, I was buying the Wii. Like, yeah, that's not a thing like a child would say, I don't think. Like, anyways, but yeah, so our nostalgia doesn't lie there. Our nostalgia lies more with the NES, as we said. And the NES, you know, came out in the mid-80s, like, you know, was popular right up until the early 90s, when the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis came out, and that was the next generation for us, but you know, like, uh, I think the, the needle hooked into our arms back in, you know, the NES days, that's when they first got us. Absolutely. And I think arguably one of the first games that a lot of people in our generation probably would have either played or owned was the original Super Mario Brothers. Absolutely. Uh, you likely had it. Uh, either came packaged in with your NES or it was purchased for you separately. Uh, that was one of those standard games that every household which had an NES had a copy of Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. That was the... The entryway into modern gaming for so many people. Yeah, I believe they called it the pack-in title for a lot of the things. I mean, like, it wasn't... But oftentimes, it wasn't just Super Mario Brothers. It was usually... Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt was the common one that we all had. There was also a couple of, like, other ones where I think they included that track and field in there as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you would just see just Super Mario Brothers, but that one was a little bit more rare but yeah, I mean, obviously, it being one of like the the first games you would have had for your system, obviously you would have wanted to open it up. So there's not really many, if any, sealed copies of Super Mario Brothers that are out there anymore because, yeah, all the reasons I just said. Exactly. Uh, if, if you are a kid at, or were a kid at the time, you're going to play with it. So you won't have the sense to put it aside and keep it in good condition for uh, resale 30, 35 years down the line. You won't have that that thought process whatsoever. No. Uh, perhaps you were an adult at the time, and if you made that purchase, that $40, $50 purchase at the time, you would likely want to see what the hell you just bought money on or spent money on considering... Video gaming, uh, I mean, was this, uh, you know, new approach to video gaming after the crash of the Ataris uh, a few years prior? 
Yeah. And what is this new thing all about? So, and, and let's face it, as as I said, Super Mario Brothers for the NES was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It uh, was kind of a default game that people had in their collections. So it's not a particularly uncommon game. In fact, it was a very common game. But uh, the real uncommon, the real rare thing is to find one that is still in its packaging. And we have spoken about, oh, I think last year was the real year when uh, shit would sell for way too much money at auction. Yep. Rare games came up purely out of coincidence in a uh, fairly consecutive steady stream through the year and sell for ridiculous sums of money. And it's good to see that though it's been dormant for a while, that trend still in intact for 2020. Yeah. And last week we would, we didn't really have a chance to speak about it because the auction ended last Friday uh, was reported all last weekend, but we can finally speak about it now. The fact that a copy of Super Mario Brothers for the NES sold for a record-setting one hundred fourteen thousand U.S. dollars. Yeah, so you're probably thinking, what the hell is so special about that? As we already said, everyone had that game. Like, it's not a rare game. No, there's nothing particularly super special about it. But this one. It was special for a couple of very key reasons. Um, firstly, it was the highest graded uh, sealed Super Mario Brothers game cartridge ever offered at a public auction. Uh, and it even retains its original cardboard hang, hang tab, uh, a quality that makes it vintage among collectors. And its grade, when I said it was the highest graded one, was a 9.4 out of 10, which... Um, I don't remember. It's pretty damn good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, That's almost mint. Almost yeah. absolute mint. Uh, what's the grading system? Gemma? Off the top of my head, I don't recall. Uh, Anyways, like, they're, they're whoever the authority is on that. Mm-hmm. Talk, we spoke about them before, but I don't remember which one handles which. But, yeah, 9.4 out of 10 is, like, very rare. Like, usually, like, complete in box, mint is usually considered what? anywhere above 8.5 or something? 8.5. Usually the real high-end ones are 9. The fact that this is 9.4 is what's making it so so rare. Plus, the fact uh, it still had, and this is an important detail, it still had that cardboard hang hang tab on the back. You may not know and may not be able to envision what the hell that is. But if you go to a store, back when there were still stores... (laughs) A couple months ago. Uh, say if you went to the store and uh, looked in the toy aisle, toy aisle and there were the action figures, uh, whatever, G.I. Joe's, wrestling figures, turtles, pick your poison. But uh, they're all action figures in their cardboard package, and they are hanging from just the display rods on the pegboard or whatnot in the aisle. And they have a specific cutout for that package to hang on. So on the back of some very early runs of NES boxes, there was a fold-out tab that these stores were to punch out, lift up and raise, and then hang from these display rods as though they were action figures, as though they were toys. Yeah. But most retailers didn't do that because you're literally puncturing the box. Yeah. And creating an opening in the box. So they didn't. They would just apply their own plastic sticky tab to the back and hang it off that. Yeah. But this still had its sealed perforation, uh, unperforated 
cutout for the hang tab. Yeah, which, which is super impressive. Absolutely, and still the plastic in almost pristine condition, and all those factors combining for this to sell at auction through Heritage, Heritage Auctions in Dallas, who are making a name for dealing in these very rare uh, nerd-centric collectibles, selling for $114,000. The previous uh, record holder uh, came February of last year when a copy of Super Mario Brothers sold for $100,150. As you can imagine, the buyer of this very expensive copy of Super Mario Brothers wishing to remain anonymous, not let it be known, A, they've got that kind of money, and B, they have this game. Yeah. And see, they have that kind of money to spend on a thing like this, specifically. Absolutely. Because it's one thing to have that kind of money, and it's another thing to just be able to spend it on this. You know, like, yeah, anyways. And it's WADA ratings. W-A-T-A. That's it. It's, yeah. So, yeah, this wasn't, I mean, this wasn't the only big number that day. This was the biggest number that day for this whole auction that happened. But there was other big numbers that happened in this auction, too. It was like a money party that was going on, you know, I guess people were delirious from COVID and needed to get rid of as much money as they possibly could. Yeah, needed to let loose, and uh, obviously amongst the, the, the rich ne'er-do-wells of the world in the game-collecting community, it was a money fight, and uh, they were just throwing money at each other hand over fist, and uh, some other big things that sold for crazy amounts of money. Um, well, this one, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out!, another very popular, kind of rare game for the NES, uh, was rated as a 9.2B uh, in the water rating scale, sold uh, for 50400 U.S. dollars. Yeah, and then the last thing, or... Another uh, thing. Another thing, not the last thing. I mean, among the things that sold, uh, the first sealed copy of Super Mario Bros. 3 uh, rated at WADA 9.0A <coughs> um, was sold for $38,400, so... Also, a hell of a lot of money. And that one, that's a copy of Mario 3, what makes it rare is the fact it's referred to as a Brothers Left. So the, obviously, if you picture the box for Super Mario Brothers 3, the bright yellow cover, the blue lettering, Mario flying through the air at the very bottom. The detail being the placement of the word Brothers. Or uh, Bros. Or Bros, yes. Uh, as it was shortened. In that, well, and has always been shortened, but Bros. So... On the early runs of Super Mario Bros. 3, it was adjusted to the left. So it was basically the left edge was perfectly in line with the with Super and Mario. But in so doing, in that placement, it was covering over Mario's right hand as he's spread out flying through the air. Yeah. That was fixed, and in later copies and prints of the game, the bros was adjusted to the right to be closer to the number three. So Mario's right hand could just not be covered. That's a detail collectors have picked up on. They look for it now in their copies of Mario Brothers Street. That makes it all the more valuable. Yeah, because there's it's believed to be one of fewer than ten in existence right now of this whole Bros Left thing, which sounds ridiculous to say. It, it, yes, uh, Bros anything sounds ridiculous these days. Uh, but another another gaming collectible that was sold. Uh, at auction, though we, uh, oh, though we do have a number for it. I didn't see it initially, but we do have a number. Uh, was not a game, but instead was a prototype console from Sega. It was called the Sega Pluto O2, which was a precursor to the Sega Saturn. Uh, or I believe a... Well, it's, it's a second model of the Sega second Saturn. Model. Sorry. Uh, 
was, that never got released. No, because Sega just kind of moved on and started working on the Dreamcast after that. So it was never released. Uh, it's a prototype, I believe one of one or one of maybe a handful in existence that sold at auction for 84,000 US dollars, which is less than 114,000 for one copy of Super Mario Brothers, but even still, Someone spent $84,000 for a Sega console prototype. Yeah. They sure did. <laughs> so don't believe anyone who says that the economy is in the shits. In the game collecting community, there's always money. Oh, yeah. It's it's basically like never-ending money in the game collecting community, apparently. Nope. Now, these sums are... They sound large to me, and obviously they sound large to you and probably sound large to a number of other listeners out there in the world who are hearing this, these values will increase. Yeah. That's the idea. You're buying it now. It's going to appreciate in value and you will make a a profit on it in five, 10 years time. Yeah. It's because like it's, we've, we talked about this before with Pokemon cards and things like that. Magic cards, how they've basically effectively upended sports cards like baseball and hockey cards as being the things that people want to actually collect and invest in now. So you end up with people who maybe don't know a lot about Pokemon and Magic and whatever cards, Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And, and don't care. And don't care because like they're like, how much is that? How much was it last year? Okay, I'm going to buy it. Seems like it increases pretty steadily, so that's going to be a pretty good investment. I even read a thing about how there was some people who actually buy a pallet worth of every new set of magic cards, like boxes of magic cards every time they come out and they've been doing it since the original, like the original, original magic cards were made and they basically hold on to them for like 20 years. And then they start selling off, like they open up the pallet and then start selling off un- like sealed boxes one by one. And I think so far, they've made some sort of like ridiculous profit, like, like I think $10 million per pallet or something insane. It's like, holy crap. Of course, like don't quote me on the exact number, but yeah, how it's like this whole idea of just buying up things that you know are basically going to be collectible and then just letting them appreciate. And yeah, video games are definitely at that point now. Well, let's us out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can go through your collection. Maybe you have some, some slightly rare thing. Probably going to get a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. Not in the six figure range that, uh, or five to six figure range that some of these items are. That would be nice. Give it 20 years. Uh, well, then these values are 20 years appreciated as well. Yeah. That's true. So it's a matter of scale, but, uh, it would be nice to have that score. Just come across a rare copy of, you know, track something, and field, yeah. Nintendo World Championships, or, or, you know, something or other like that and make that ridiculous score. But nevertheless, we uh, are very unlikely to do that as more and more attention uh, is paid to the collectible gaming community and the prices just get ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, years ago, like, going back to the, those, you know, early adult days, we used to go out and just kind of go to used game shops. You know, it was sort of like, Emulators, I think, were around, but there was still a point when you could get pretty much any NES game for like five to ten bucks. 
So we would often go out and buy like eight games at a time and just, just to see like, Hey, how crappy is this one going to be? <laughs> Guess it's pretty crappy. Play it for five minutes and then turn it off. Like, yeah, it explains why I have a Captain Planet game. Yeah, it explains why I have a lot of games. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, like, we, I remember the point when we had to stop doing that because it's like, holy crap, even these crappy games are going to be like $30, $40. Like, I can't justify this. Mm-hmm. Like, no. Not worth it. And you just build up a stockpile of crappy games that you just don't want to have that many crappy games. Yeah, exactly. And add to it anymore. But uh, that is the nostalgia, and people will pay for nostalgia. This is one thing we have noticed through the years of doing this program. Uh, just in life in general, people will pay for nostalgia. And Nintendo has figured that out, hence the success of the NES Classic Edition, Super Nintendo Classic Edition, the N64 Classic Edition, if and when that's ever a thing, um, the Game Boy Classic Edition, if that's ever a thing. You know, Nintendo will cash in on this. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also, Lego has a way of cashing in on nostalgia as well, with all their various, <laughs> like, Star Wars sets as well. Yeah, exactly. And just, you know, the fact that everyone loves Lego, Lego has been around. It's a cultural force, even though their copyright, I think, has actually run out on, or their patents has run out on their specific bricks, where I think... Oh, the uh, the the knobs and uh, grooves or whatnot? Yeah, the, there's something around, like, you know, the way that they all join together, which is why we have mega blocks and stuff. It's still, like, Lego still has, like, the power to get licenses and stuff, which is why, yeah, like, it's, you. I mean, yeah, Mega Blocks has its own stuff too, but still, Lego has like that cash. Like you, you don't. When you look at a thing, you're gonna say, "Oh, nice Legos." You're not gonna say, "Nice Mega Blocks," exactly, or "Nice whatever." Like they still, it's they're the Kleenex of that thing, you know. Like, yeah. Anyways, but yeah, Lego. Um, Lego knows how to make a partnership. Let's just say they do. They absolutely do. They've had huge success with the Lego or with the Star Wars uh, franchise. Huge success with the uh, Marvel franchise, the Lord of the Rings franchise. Yeah, some of those sets are just ridiculous. Oh yeah, insane. Uh, even in more recent years, I think they've uh, certainly developed some sets that are certainly geared towards uh, adult collectors. I believe A Falls adult fans of Lego with ridiculous seven, eight, nine hundred dollar sets of ridiculously detailed Millennium Falcons or Death Stars or replicas of Helm's Deep uh, that are just huge and expansive and whatnot. And people will pay uh, because they're awesome and it's Lego and the fact these two things are combined is a, a new awesome thing, even though it, it's crazy expensive. Go to a Lego store and cringe at the prices but also, secretly inside, there's a part of you that kind of wants the thing. Yeah. Like that, one of my friends has the Helm's Deep set from, or had the Helm's Deep set for Lego. And it was like some insane number of pieces. Like, I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I said like 7,900 pieces or something. And like, it was like a, or maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it was like a 3000 piece set, but still seeing it all put together was like really impressive and like really awesome. Absolutely. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
And for us uh, nostalgic video game fans, Nintendo had Nintendo and Lego had an announcement for us this week. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but the news that Lego and Nintendo teaming up to release uh, in just in a couple weeks, the Lego Nintendo Entertainment System uh, set, uh, building set, which is a replica of Nintendo's classic 1985 console, and also includes a little standard def TV, like a box console TV to go with your console. So I don't know if you saw the uh, the video and all the details for this, but this is a 2646 piece. So you are building a scale replica of the NES itself, and also the controller, and also the uh, the cartridge of Super Mario Brothers itself, and even has a little plastic uh, cord that connects the controller to the console itself, where it should. It doesn't have the same stand, you know ports the NES did, but you know still works and conveys the idea. It, this is a display piece. Let's be clear. It is cool though that the uh, the screen actually animates. It does there's, animate. There's a little crank that's included, and it uh, yeah. And so it will, uh, you build, I guess, the scrolling background of, uh, World 1-1, or Stage 1-1 from Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, not the whole world, but no, yeah. A, a small section, the beginning section of 1-1 from Super Mario Brothers. It's a very 80s, you know, console TV. Even on the back of the TV, they have the details of the ports, the, uh, the coax cable inputs, the, the, you know, where the power cord would go, that kind of thing. And, uh, a, a lot of attention to detail on this thing. And it's really impressive. And, uh, as you can see, if you watch the video that we linked to in our show notes for this week, uh, on the arcade show.com is the fact that the new Bluetooth Mario that's included in the upcoming Super Mario Lego sets, the, the ones where you can build kind of stages. And whatnot. If you plug him onto the top of this console TV in the Lego NES set, and and crank the wheel on the side of the TV, so little Mario on the screen will kind of go through and do the level. New Bluetooth Mario on top will do the sound effects and the music for the stage <laughs> as you play through. Yeah, it's a ridiculous level of connectivity. It's really impressive. It's also three hundred dollars Canadian. Yeah. But yeah, just um, you're having a mild heart attack as I'm talking through this. Yeah, sorry, I was I was clicking through the uh, the Lego website, you know, just to see some other things, you know, because they have like the related or recommended for you sets, and just I saw <laughs> I missed the I, I missed our trademark synchronized dot com because I was looking at uh, they have a replica Lego set of the Manchester United Stadium, Old Trafford, yeah. And then I looked, they have a Lego Technic set for a Lamborghini Chian FKP 37. I don't think I pronounced that right, but it's a Lamborghini for God's sakes. It's a Lego Technic Lamborghini, and it looks awesome. (laughs) What's the price on that? That one is $489.99 CAD. So just shy of 500 bucks. Looks awesome though. Absolutely looks awesome. And how much was the old Trafford set that you kind of guffawed at, guffawed at initially? That was $349. Well, that's not that bad by comparison. No. Only $50 more than this NES set. <laughs> yeah. But even so, 
That's $300 for an NES uh, Lego set, or $350 for a model of Old Trafford, or $500 to build a Lamborghini. So, (laughs) yeah. Lego is crazy expensive. Now, was it always this expensive? No, no it wasn't. But all these license and partnership deals come with an added expense. There's the trade-off. You can build these awesome, cool things, like a model and scale NES uh, replica, like a replica of a Lamborghini, but then you're also having to pay the cost of Nintendo or of Lego having the licensing deals for these things. Also, I'd like to just say Old Trafford, 3,898 pieces. That's pretty good. Yeah. The uh, NES uh, uh, console replica and TV replica, again, 2,646 pieces. Yep. A lot of little pieces. Uh, especially we'll go into making the mechanics of the TV itself work and make the background scroll scroll around and whatnot. So uh, a lot of your time is going to be spent on that. But a really neat uh, little display piece to have out. And size-wise, certainly going to fit in a lot more places than some of the larger Death Stars or Millennium Falcons or uh, Star Destroyers or At-At Walkers that uh, there are Lego sets for. Yeah. And certainly fit in more places than a replica of Old Trafford. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. So, I did see when I was uh, looking on my own at the Lego product page for the NES uh, replica, the Jurassic Park. You can build the gates from Jurassic Park and also a T-Rex. Yeah, they call it the T-Rex Rampage. (laughs) Has all the little minifigs for everyone. Jeff Goldblum one, Sam Jackson one, like uh, Sam Neill, everyone's in there. Kids, yeah, it's it's crazy. So this is cool. Yeah, like there are some really cool sets. Like we we can scoff at the price, but they're awesome. Like they have Hogwarts for five hundred dollars. Hogwarts, which I mean, five hundred doesn't seem that bad. It's a six thousand twenty piece Lego set. And it's only 500? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, to for build, Hogwarts. To build Hogwarts. Like, yeah, like, Lego's got all, like, the crazy... They have all the crazy licenses for everything. Like it's, They do. It's nuts. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now, are you going to be getting the Lego NES set? Probably not. But if someone had it, you would look at it and probably... Oh, yeah. That's, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is you're getting the NES set. I would not uh, say no if someone bought it for me. <laughs> oh, man. I would gladly accept it and welcome it into my life, and I would put the box on a shelf or in storage somewhere alongside my yellow submarine set that I still have yet to do <laughs> and build one day. Yeah. Because there's a... Lego set for the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Also, there's a whole... There's a couple of Minion sets. Okay. Now you're just going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm going down the rabbit hole. I'm going to close this right now. Yeah, that's probably for the best. So uh, that's going to cost you a pretty penny. Investing in classic gaming, uh, the actual games themselves, is going to cost you a pretty penny. Uh, Gaming is not cheap these days. No. uh, Either on the consumer side or the business side of it, either. No, uh, the business side seems insanely expensive when you want to um, invest in any sort of big company that you know is going to make you money. Mm-hmm. 
so Sony, th- you know, saw the wild and crazy success of Fortnite and decided, you know what? We want to get in on that. We're going to try to invest in Epic Games. So Sony, oh, they did. yeah, and they did. Sony put a quarter of a, or two hundred fifty, not a quarter of a million, quarter of a billion dollars into Epic Games. And you must be thinking, ooh, two hundred fifty million dollars—that's a lot of money. They must have gotten quite a quite an ownership share for that investment. Well, guess again. Guess what? Two hundred fifty million dollars. Guess what percentage of two hundred fifty million dollars? Or get, sorry, guess what percentage of Epic Games two hundred fifty million dollars will get you? Third time's a charm with that sentence. There we go. I uh, I mean, you'd think maybe ten percent, thirty would seem a bit high. So I'd go down from that, maybe like ten percent, and feel good in that range and feel comfortable there. One point four percent. Single digits. So, like, not even 2%. Not even 1.5%. Like, $250 million. That's, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Like, so that works out, uh, to roughly to an evaluation for Epic Games of seven, almost $18 billion. $17.86 billion. Yeah. Which, Kind of makes sense when you think, cause remember when Fortnite was first sort of taking the world by storm mm-hmm. and people were trying to wrap their head around how they were making money with it, it being a free game and all. And they were basically like, yeah, just basically sell little customizable trinkets for your characters. A whole lot of these $1 transactions. Yeah. It's like, we have the crazy user base because it's free. All we need is some people to put a dollar in each, and then we make a shitload of money. And it's worked really well for them. To the point where I think in the first year that it was out, they made, what, $2.5 billion in pure profit or something? Something to that effect. A crazy amount for a, a really young game. Yeah. A young free-to-play game. Yeah. And... So that was early on. I mean, a couple of years ago, Tencent, who are a big tech company based out of China, bought a 40% ownership stake in the company uh, for $330 million. Yeah. That so, was in 2012. Yeah, so that's how much Epic Games has grown since then. So we know Sony now owns a part of Epic Games. Tencent owns a very big part of Epic Games. Tim Sweeney remains the majority owner of Epic Games. Yeah. So the evaluation, given this deal with Sony, pegs uh, Epic Games at $17.86 billion. So if we figure Tim Sweeney has at least half that... Like, to be a majority owner, you need to have 51%, I believe. Yes, you do. Your math checks out. So he's more than... He's worth, what, $8.75 billion to ballpark a number? Somewhere around there, yeah. Tim Sweeney, longtime game developer, engineer, code nerd, eight, almost $9 billion. Yeah. Jesus H. Christ. Yes. Pardon the blasphemy. Don't, don't pardon. Don't pardon the blasphemy. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah. 
holy crap. I mean, it's no Jeff Bezos money, but still. No, I mean, few things in this world are Jeff Bezos money. Yes, Jeff Bezos money should not be Jeff Bezos money. No, no, it should not. But that's a discussion for a whole other podcast. We don't need to get into that right now. Hopefully our feelings on that have been clear over the years, but uh, yeah. Yes, uh, <laughs> tune in to our next podcast, Vive la Révolution, uh, coming soon to a podcast uh, platform near you. <laughs> yeah. The hey. revolution will be podcasted. <laughs> yes, but not televised because that's a dying medium. No, well, somewhat, yes, and the powers that be control it, and it's very hard to crack into podcasting. Podcasting, though, anyone can have one of those. Just look at us. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so that's a lot of money. It is, and it's not as though Sony is buying any sort of exclusivity of Epic uh, content or Unreal Engine or anything like that. They just kind of want to be there along for the ride. Yeah, uh, I think like the the exact media quote here um, says, uh, and I quote uh, from a, some press release Sony put out regarding this: uh, the investment. And I quote: the investment cements an already close relationship between the two companies and reinforces the shared mission to advance the state of the art in technology, entertainment, and socially connected online services. The investment allows Sony and Epic to aim to broaden their collaboration across Sony's leading platform or leading portfolio of entertainment assets and technology and Epic's social entertainment platform and digital ecosystem to create unique experiences for consumers and creators. End quote. All right, then. Yeah. So um, whatever that means, I don't think there was a single word that meant anything in there. It was all just vapid marketing speak. I'm pretty sure that was uh, just automatically generated. Yeah. That was just an AI chatbot spit that out. Yeah. They, you know, an AI chatbot just basically read a whole bunch of marketing press releases from game companies for the last five years and just, you know, you just typed in how many words you want it to be roughly be, and then it just kind of put that out there. So, yeah. Done. Uh, I read elsewhere that uh, from an Epic Games representative, possibly Tim Sweeney, saying that this uh, discussion of investment with uh, Sony really started in earnest after the uh, demo reel was shown off for Unreal Engine 5. Yeah. And Sony was very gaga over that. I think a lot of people were very gaga over that. They saw that crazy demo and thought, holy crap, games are going to look... So here was my thought. You know, we've been talking about for years how we've almost plateaued with the quality that animation has in games. Mm -hmm. When I saw that, I thought, holy crap, this actually looks tangibly better. Like, this might actually be the next and maybe final animation jump games really make before they just look exactly like real life. Interesting. That was my thought, anyways. Did it cross into the Uncanny Valley? Not really yet, but that, you know, it looks like there's the potential for that to happen, but I think they took some, they made a smart choice in making the character look a little bit cartoony with, like, you know, different proportions than humans have in their face and stuff. So, like, they avoided that a bit, but, like, the environments looked insane. Like, really insane. And that's Unreal Engine 5, done by Epic Games, yeah. who have a revenue source in licensing the game engine technology that is one of their uh, money-making trees. They, of course, have Fortnite. They also have the Epic Game Store. Yep. And whatever in various and sundry 
deals they are now cutting with other entertainment uh, companies to show things and play movies and have concerts inside Fortnite. Though it's very interesting that you mentioned the uh, the licensing of Unreal Engine. We did talk about how they're basically trying to undercut every other engine by a wide margin with, you know, their Unreal price cuts. Like, they're they're basically making it so that, what was the number? Like a million dollars in profit you can get away with for free or... Oh yeah, yeah, the licensing deal. They uh, just announced yeah, the rejig deal. Yes, yeah. you can, your first million is basically yours. Yeah, and then after that, it was like some super low percentage, which really made you know Unity and stuff look like. Well, why would you go with Unity then, or anything else? Like this looks like it's maybe a really good deal. And that's on top of rejigging the, uh, I guess, profit sharing for companies on the Epic Game Store. Yeah. So Epic Games, looking like they want to reform the uh, the games industry, but also they're going to take over. Yeah, they really this are. This is how you lay the groundwork to take over. Yeah. This is basically like a coup. Or like a... They, <laughs> this is how you basically just, just undercut everyone when you have... Like, get big enough that you can basically survive for a while without making any profit super undercut everyone, destroy the competition, and then either, what, jack the price back up or just be the only one with a steady income stream? And then, yeah, now you're the only game in town. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're, like, it's like, oh, people are, you know, paying a whole lot less. They might not be making as much as they could be, but at least they're the only game in town. It's a hell of a thing. And they yeah. have done it under everyone's nose. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that? Uh, who would have seen that coming considering they were the, uh, you know, games maker. They did this funny little game called Fortnite. Oh, you can buy hats for a dollar. And well, then they started doing partnership deals and more partnership deals. And suddenly they had a huge user base. So yeah, that crept up on everyone. Yeah. So let that be a lesson in business to some other people out there. Um, maybe that's something to look into. Maybe try and uh, fight uh, Epic Games at their own game. And maybe maybe uh, a young upstart like Amazon could take some advice from them. One of yeah. those small, small, struggling, independent firms. Yeah, you know, they, they, they have cash flow problems these days. You know, they just can't seem to financially get it together. <laughs> oh, man. You know, re- really hoping for them to pull through. Through these difficult times. Almost puked in my mouth a little bit saying all that. Not going to (laughs) lie. Anyways. As someone who has ordered a shit ton of stuff off Amazon, uh, I mean, you and I both and everyone out there, we're feeding the beast. No, it's really hard not to. I mean, I hate doing it, but sometimes it's like I need a thing and they don't have it at any of the stores here and... It's so much more expensive in the stores here. Blah, blah, blah. Anyways, no need to justify whatever. Like, you know, just, I guess the general, if we, if there's a lesson from this little side rant, try to order less on Amazon, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like we've been trying to order less on Amazon. Anyways. They're evil. Yeah, they're, they're evil. They're legitimately like the closest thing to like comic book villainry that exists in the world. Them and Apple, like they're trillion dollar companies. That's too much money. That's like, frankly 
no one should have that much money in one place. Amazon is the real world uh, equivalent of Luther Corp and Lex Luther. Yes, yes, they are. They hundred percent are. <laughs> but yeah, so. Anyways, the reason why we're transitioning into talking about Amazon is because, you know, blah, blah, blah. They have, they have a games division now because they're trying to muscle in on games because they have to be everywhere. Exactly. They, they want to have, you know, the Amazon logo in every single way that you can imagine it being, you know, that little arrow going from A to Z mm-hmm. and, you know, making that weird smile, like has to be pervasive as possible. It just has to live everywhere. And, you know, the one place that they really weren't was video games, so they're like, well, let's get in there too. And we laughed because their first foray was going to be a kind of really shitty looking free to, was it free to play shooter? Free, free to play, uh, hero character based shooter called so, Crucible. So like, I think they were trying to, you know, mimic the Fortnite model by making it free to play. But the problem with that is that their game looks really shitty. Like, Fortnite looks good. Fortnite looks good. Uh, also, I felt that there was some tones of Overwatch to it as well. Yeah. Um, Which is another game that looks good, plays good, has, an, has a fan base already. Mm-hmm. This So they, this game that Amazon put into beta, and really, I guess they released it into beta, was called Crucible. Well, I think they widely released it. And they widely released it. A uh, couple couple weeks ago, um, maybe what, maybe a month or two ago, it it was not in wide release for very long. Uh, we spoke about it when it came out and the debut trailer for it and whatnot, and how it just kind of looked generic. It looked like uh, the the GoBot version of uh, a hero shooter in this day and age. Yeah, and the graphics, frankly, didn't look like they lived up to current generation graphics, which I thought was really surprising, given how much money Amazon has and how much money Amazon could have put towards something like this. Absolutely. When the game released, too, it came with uh, three different modes. I think Capture the Flag, King of the Hill, and basically Battle Royale. Yeah. And then... Maybe a month after it was released, uh, the development team announced that they were removing the two least popular modes. Uh, what those were at the time, I don't recall, but they were removing two of them, leaving just one to try and focus the gameplay experience of Crucible. And now, news coming out uh, just about a week or two ago that Amazon, I guess, kind of going to lick their wounds and take their loss and pull Crucible from wide release and bring it back to beta. A closed beta. Yeah. Amazon done screwed up. Yeah. Amazon made an oopsie. <laughs> oopsie whoopsie. How often how often does anyone say that? Not often enough. Well, well yeah, true. Feels good saying that. Amazon screwed up. Yeah. Hey Amazon, you really screwed this one up. Yeah, not so smart, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Where's your money now? <laughs> Oh, wait, it's... Everywhere. Everywhere, never yeah. mind. He's got it buried under your house. Yeah, he... His money is in your bank account. Oh, crap. <laughs> He's pointing at me, going... <laughs> and I'm going, ah, crap. But anyways, yeah. So the announcement was made in a uh, post to the de- uh, development studio blog. Uh, basically, they need to uh, rethink the game. Um uh, refocus it. It came, yeah, May is when it came out. Really didn't make any waves. And uh, basically the player base fell to, 
I think less than about 200 players a day. Wow, so it's almost like releasing a really crappy version of like a game that everyone already has a good version that they're playing is like a bad business idea or something. Weird. Weird. It's almost like making a clone of like a really popular thing is going to kind of rub people the wrong way when it's not better than the thing you're cloning. Hmm. And offers no new experiences. Yeah. Weird. Weird. What a strange idea. They thought it would work. Well, it's like, you know, they used all their business acumen and just like, you know, they ran all the numbers and it should have worked. Wow. I mean, weird. Amazon does have a cloning machine, so. (laughs) As if they couldn't apply it to this. That's a good point. (laughs) I mean, Jeff Bezos has been dead for 15 years. The one we're seeing now is just the strong clone. We're seeing Beth Jesus. If you were one of the few people out there who was playing Crucible uh, with any sort of regularity... Uh, you'll still be able to access the game. New users will have to wait until the sign-up period opens again at some point in the future. Uh, the developer is saying that this move will allow them to, quote, focus on providing the best possible experience for our players, end quote. Uh, so they need to basically totally rethink it, and they saw that it wasn't hitting the benchmarks that they thought it would, and uh, uh, the, came, or the call came down from on high to uh, fix it, or they would be fixed. Okay, whatever that means. Well, it sounds vaguely threatening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, Amazon, I mean, they can they can make a lot of money in a lot of fields, but games is still so foreign to them. <laughs> yeah. If they released a product, why weren't people playing it? But we're Amazon. Couldn't we just make, like, an Alexa video game? <laughs> Can't we just, like, somehow use Alexa to make video games? Wait, is Alexa a video game? <laughs> Anyways. Types oh. it into Google, is Alexa a video game? <laughs> That's a Jeff Bezos Google search. Oh, God. A Jeff Bezos Google search is, is Google for sale? <laughs> Anyways, yeah. For, for the right price. Yeah, probably... Imagine how big of an antitrust case that would be. Amazon bought Google. Yes, but just think of all the money Jeff Bezos could use to buy off uh, complicity uh, within the U.S. Congress and Senate and lawyers and judges. Lex Luthor. And maybe a whole government somewhere in the South Pacific. Oh, of course. He could just buy his own country. Bezosia. (laughs) Anyways... Where he makes all of the citizens shave their heads and look just like him and Jeffistan. <laughs> Jeffistan. Yes. <laughs> uh. Well, that's a horrible vision of the future, but that is still entirely possible in twenty twenty. Yeah, I hate how plausible that actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> like you may have heard some quirky news story in the past of like, ooh, small town changed his name for one year to Dr. Pepperville or something. When they get 250000 for, like, a community center or something. Yeah. Whereas now it would be less cute, less quirky, and 
very ominous. Yeah. And portending a very dark future. Yeah. Like, if you've ever seen, no, just a side rant here. You ever seen Demolition Man? Mm-hmm. You know how, like... The fast food wars? Yeah, they talk about the franchise wars. <laughs> and how, like, Taco Bell won everything. Well, just, we're kind of living in that now, except Amazon won everything. They're close. Yeah. It's insane. Good it times. Is. Hey, 2020 is not over yet. No. Anything's possible. Yeah. 20, yeah, 2020 be damned. We are kind of living in that weird dystopian future now, mm-hmm. which is, uh, huh. Cubs just had to win that World <laughs> Series. <laughs> they had to turn me on that stupid Large Hadron Collider on. Ever since then, everything's been wacky, crazy time. Kicked us onto a different timeline, and here we are. We we are on the darkest timeline. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Nothing makes sense anymore. I mean, sometimes we don't even make sense, but most of the time, we still do. But yeah, most it, of the time. It is with our better sense that we will use this time to get into our last segment of the show, The Blast from the Past. Yeah. The portion of the show where we take some minutes to uh, fet and celebrate things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries that we deem worth talking about. They could be movies, TV shows, games, uh, albums, I'd say books, but no one reads anymore. The government took all those away. <laughs> Yes. Uh, we only read what uh, Lord Bezos lets us. <laughs> Praise be his name. We only read what's on the Amazon Top 100. <laughs> Every day our Kindle gets a new book for us to read. Eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. It does not spark joy. Therefore, I... <laughs> Anyways, I can't, go- I can't keep going down that path because it's... What we're actually it's, living it's in bleak. now. It's bleak. It's bleak. It's bleak and it's, it's real. <laughs> Anyways, uh. Take a shot. <laughs> oh man. Uh, but we have two <laughs> items this week, a movie and an album. Uh, where of the two would you like to, uh, start with on this week's, uh, episode? Try and pull us out of the, uh, dark dystopian future. Well, we could go. Tailspin. We could go way far back to the album, I think, first. I think that's probably a, we could, we could go forward in time, but not too far forward in time. Certainly not, no. The, Since the newest of the two items is 20 years old now, which is insane to say, but uh, yeah, let's go with the older of the items, which is 35 years old. And the older of the items is indeed 35 years old, having come out on July 20th of 1985. It is a musical album called How Could It Be? And it's very likely you have not uh, heard that album title. Uh, you're hearing it, and it's it's striking nothing inside you. There's no significance to that name. Uh, you don't even know who did the album. You're probably wondering, well, why are we talking about it? What is significant? What is noteworthy about this particular album that's 35 years old called How Could It Be? Well, friends, it's an album that was done by Eddie Murphy. Yes, comedy great Eddie Murphy. Modern yeah. comedy legend Eddie Murphy. Yeah. So, I guess on the heels of, you know, him doing his, you know, now legendary comedy special, like Delirious, I guess it sort of became, people sort of realized, Eddie Murphy can actually sing. Like, his musical impressions were spot on in Delirious. Mm -hmm. Like, there's parts of Delirious that have aged very poorly, but I think overall it's still very funny. Like, it's... it. It's from a different time. Don't judge it too harshly. He was a 21-year-old kid in 1981. Like, of course, he's going to say some 
things that are going to be deemed problematic now, but yeah, like his, his impression of Elvis, excellent. His impression of Michael Jackson, excellent. Absolutely. His impression of like Luther Vandross, also excellent. James Brown, like really good musical impressions. And he can hold a, like he can hold a tune. Like he can sing and key. Like there's also like evidence of him like doing musical numbers with Stevie Wonder and things over the years. So yeah, he can actually sing. He might not consider himself much of a singer, but he's a pretty good singer. And yeah, like, so that obviously got parlayed into the fact that, hey, maybe he should release an album. And that started actually, this started like a career of him releasing numerous albums. I think with his latest album being released, what, a few years ago, like four or five years ago, something like that. Something like that. But yeah, so this was, I think, his first musical album. And you might think like, I don't know what songs would have been on it. Well, guess what? There was actually a major hit song in the 1980s that you might not have realized is an Eddie Murphy song. You may have heard of it. It may have come up in a playlist uh, on Spotify or some such thing on YouTube or whatnot. Great, uh, you know, dance party hits from the 80s called Party All the Time. That's Eddie Murphy singing, and that was the lead single off this album, How Could It Be? Yeah. And so- that is perhaps the most noteworthy song or most uh, catchy song on the album because overall as an album, I mean, I don't know what to expect when it's an Eddie Murphy musical album, but unremarkable is, was my takeaway after several listens to it. Yeah. I mean, like he, he he can sing. It's clear he can sing. He can sing. He's got some musical connections. I mean, the album was produced by him, Stevie Wonder and Rick James of all people. The hell of a trio. Yeah. That's a party. And I mean, like, that was in the era. Like, if you ever watched the Chappelle show during the Charlie Murphy stories, when Charlie Murphy talks about, you know, the times, you know, the Rick James story, it was from this era, you know, when Eddie Murphy was, like, top of the world, recording stuff, basically hanging out with Rick James and having, like, cocaine parties, basically. So it was of that era. So, like, he had musical connections and friends and stuff. Like, obviously, Stevie Wonder, one of the greats of all time, really. Um, not really doing anything super remarkable with this album, though. No, it's, uh, what, an eight-song tri- eight album. And yeah. the first half of the album is very... Uh, yacht-rocky love and romance songs. Yeah. And the, the, which are like very inoffensive. There's nothing remarkable to them. They are easily forgettable. There's some slight catchiness to them, but that's it. You know, turn the radio off and they will leave your brain. Yeah. Uh, then it kind of gets into the back half of the album is a bit more upbeat, a bit more poppy, a bit more uh, some dancey hits to it, but still not anything really to write home about. Which, uh, I don't know really what to expect, as I said, when it's an Eddie Murphy album, when his comedy prior to that may lead you to think this will be a fun album, maybe some, you know, comedic originals on there or something like that. But no, he is playing it very straight-laced on this album. Yeah. Like, he takes it seriously. He's a real singer. Like, I don't think he gets enough credit for being a real singer. Like, he's actually a good singer. Like, I gotta give Eddie Murphy that, like, he's, he's kind of, he's got it, like, he had it back then, like, when he was a kid, like, 
He can do it. Absolutely. But it's just never really been applied to anything super notable. I mean, of course, Party All the Time, big hit. Like, it, it, if, if you've never heard it before, once you hear it, it'll be in your head for the rest of your life. Yeah, that chorus is going to be with you. Yeah, it's just there. Which is a testament, I guess, to the fact that, like, you know, he has that going for him, at least. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a curiosity, and it's also very interesting. Something I didn't realize reading through the Wikipedia page for How Could It Be. Um, apparently, it was recorded as part of fulfilling a $1 million bet with his his hero, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor bet him a $1 million um, saying that he couldn't sing. So he was just, <laughs> there's a liner note saying, to Richard Pryor, my idol with whom I have a $1 million bet. No, mother effer, I didn't forget. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, if there's a reason to do anything, a million dollar bet is probably the best reason. Not just a million dollar bet, a million dollar bet with Richard Pryor. <laughs> Back when Richard Pryor was still like, like in the 80s, Richard Pryor, like, <laughs> so yeah. Anyways, damn. Yeah. Damn. Damn indeed. So, Eddie Murphy, how could it be worth a listen as a curiosity? Uh, some parts will get stuck in your head. Uh, I mean, some productions stand out better than others. The Rick James uh, works uh, are a bit more catchier, a bit more dancey. Uh, you'll hear some uh, efforts of Stevie Wonder on the album as well. He contributes a harmonica solo in which he breaks into Mary Had a Little Lamb at one point. Yep, in the classic jazz tradition of quoting, you know, it's a it's a thing jazz musicians do, quoting other little songs, little phrases from songs, just in their solos in unrelated songs. It's a fun little musical game. Absolutely. And uh, listen to it once at least, and then go back and watch Raw or Delirious, and be like, this is the same guy. Yeah. Yes, it is. And then go back and watch Shrek, and then be even <laughs> further confused to say, this is the same guy who plays this donkey? What? And then, to wash it all down, watch Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> and then just go, what What happened? And then, like, fix it all back up by watching either Trading Places, or, you know, Trading Places followed by... Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Or, you know, Coming to America. You know, there. Done. There, done. We have set your Friday night for you. Yes. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, but if you, uh, need to appreciate other things, uh, perhaps you are big into, uh, comics and, uh, I mean, perhaps a little disappointed that there's no big summer comic book blockbuster movies because this is the year of the COVIDs and of course movie theaters don't exist anymore and there's nothing being released and you're still trying to, uh, come down the high, uh, come down from the high of, uh, Avengers Endgame being released last year, which was, Really the high point for uh, comic book movies up to this point. And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that was a 10-year journey. But none of that really happens without some earlier Marvel efforts uh, being done and widely released as movies and having huge success as movies. One of them is Blade, uh, which is a weird title to be released, but that was uh, the first big the success of a modern Marvel character comic book movie. Yeah. And another one was the, you know, the, the nineties reimagining of Spider-Man with, uh, Tobey Maguire. Absolutely. And I think the third one that, uh, deserves recognition in there as well is 
the Fox adaptation of X-Men, which Absolutely. is 20 years old, having come out on July 14th, year 2000. Yes. Not, two th- I could say 2000, but it was the year 2000. Yes. Back in Y2K itself. For all of us who lived through it, it was, that's how it was referred to as the year 2000. Yes. 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Which no one ever calls it that. <laughs> Except for me, sometimes. Just to be silly. But, uh, yeah. That so, was stupid. It sure was. But, uh, yeah, um, directed by Brian Singer, who is problematic these days for various reasons. 20 years ago, he, it, his problems weren't as well known. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he... Uh, huge comic book fan. Huge comic book fan. Really brought together, I think, what still holds up to be a stellar cast. Absolutely. Like, in many ways... Well, I mean, it's been... It's kind of crazy to think that it's been 20 years since um, Hugh Jackman started playing Wolverine, but he's kind of the definitive Wolverine at this point. Mm-hmm. Love it or hate it. I mean, you might be sick of him as Wolverine, but yeah, he. this is what started it. And then also the absolute perfect casting of Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, sirs respectively, as um, Professor Xavier and Magneto. Bringing them together on this set, and then becoming fast friends as a result. Yeah, like, I think it was a thing where, like, they were always, like, they knew of each other, like, they'd been around, like, the similar theater circuits and stuff, but they never really hung out. Never really worked together. Never really worked together, and, you know, this was their avenue for doing it. Two classically trained Shakespearean actors from, like, you know, England, who are both, like, knights... (laughs) came together in X-Men, of all things, <laughs> to be, like, you know, two ridiculous, like, X-Men mutant guys. Like, the the leaders of two factions, basically. And, yeah. But to give the uh, the characters weight and seriousness, uh, basically being two, two opposite, uh, two opposed pillars. Two opposed, but arguably equal pillars. In the, in the movie, and uh, really in the first couple of movies. Yeah. And I think in life, I mean, like, when you think of, like, like people who have that level of chops in terms of acting, gravitas, and whatever they bring to the table, both those guys are pretty much equal, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, the, like, there's, like, only a couple of other people that you would maybe want to place in that same pantheon. Like, you would probably put, like, the late like Sir Christopher Lee, or basically anyone who has... Sir in front of their name could do it. Like Alec Guinness or whatever else. Like there's certain people that would, you know, legitimately like live in that kind of space. And it's amazing that they got two of these Titans basically to be in this comic book movie. In this, like, you know, what would have been at the time still probably like dismissed as like, ah, oh, it's just a stupid comic book movie. But it kind of helped by getting them to do it. I think really, Like, comic book movies before Blade were a joke. We've talked about this before. They were a total joke. People didn't really take comic book movies seriously. They were just nonsense. It was just fluff. You would just... They would be treated like just like an afterthought. Like, the comic books and video games and stuff would be treated like trash. They would be. They would not be given any sort of 
a seriousness in content and be treated with uh, a certain lighthearted touch. Yeah. Uh, that uh, almost as though the movies are looking down on the source content. Yeah. And we saw that change with Blade, with Spider-Man, with X-Men. Yeah. That they were being treated uh, by people who have reverence for them, for the source material, perhaps a greater understanding than what these movies would have received from production teams in previous years. Yeah. And uh, actually taking a serious approach to telling a story. Yeah, but I, I think specifically, like, while while Blade and Spider-Man, you know, did a lot of good work to sort of, like, start change the start changing the public opinion of comic book movies and their potential, I think having Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart in a movie like this really helped codify, oh, actually... If legitimate actors like them want to be in this, maybe there's something to this. Absolutely. And it's crazy to think that they were in this movie, but this is like a a 10-person ensemble cast movie, but yet it feels so small by today's standards of what a comic book movie is. Yeah, like this was like a huge, like there was lots and lots of stuff going on in this. And yeah, it, it even now by today's standards with the Marvel, like the expanded Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything, feels like just basically like zoning in on like a couple of city blocks, like almost like watching Daredevil or something. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost that ridiculous, even though, you know, this was very sweeping and epic in scale when it came out. But yeah, like in hindsight, now a pretty, pretty good stack cast, like a lot of, a lot of (laughs) notable people. And I think good casting choices, like, Obviously, the aforementioned Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, and Ian McKellen, but Halle Berry is Storm. Um, Famke Jansen is Jean Grey. Like James Marsden is Cyclops. And Rebecca Romaine Stamos as uh, Mystique. And, uh, yeah. And like, now, not all of these roles were really meaty roles, given no. the fact that this is it's an ensemble movie. Yeah, it is an ensemble movie, and like this, I think, like kind of made Anna Paquin a household name. True. Like it set her on the path, and I'm sure helped her get True Blood. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like she's sort of everywhere now, but like she was kind of young in this movie. She was playing Rogue, who uh, um, was a very different take on Rogue uh, for those of us who grew up watching the X Men cartoon series. Uh, that uh, you know this. Uh, refined, so, refined older Southern Belle, but in the X-Men movie, of course, played as a much younger uh, character, a uh, young mutant who's uh, trying to adjust to her powers and uh, and uh, and just being uncomfortable in her own body, so to speak. So, uh, as she is kind of portrayed as a teenage girl, so that makes sense in that context. But, uh, I mean, sets, I think, almost all in New York. And I mean, it's kind of weird to think that this there it's like a one location movie, like the big Epic final battle takes place at the statue of Liberty. And yet, you know, last year we had Avengers Endgame, which spans the entire goddamn universe. Yeah. <laughs> like it spans the universe. Like you see, like even in terms of like other big movies that are, aren't traditionally, superhero movies, but still are epic in scale. Like even like the more recent fast and the furious movies, like whose set pieces are all of New York at once for one scene. Yeah. Things like that, where you're like, that's sort of what people expect now out of like these ludicrous 
outrageous action movies, but no, like it was just kind of being around the Statue of Liberty even felt like a big deal then. Absolutely. And, uh, it's wild to think 20 years old. Yeah. Like whatever we have or will have in the, you know, months and years ahead, once we get past the COVIDs is a whole new realm of, uh, of comic book universe that, and we saw with this people who were fans of the source material coming in to do these movies. Not all the time. Looking at the examples of the Daredevil movie, the Electra movie, uh, the Fantastic Four movies. Yeah. The first two that came out in the wake of this sudden rush of everyone trying to do a comic book movie, thinking it would be a success. The, the first Hulk movie with Eric Bana. That's right, too. Yeah. So... Oh, yes, the Ang Lee one, yes. Yeah. Like, had potential, ended up dropping all that potential all over the place. <laughs> and just shattering it in a thousand pieces. Yeah. Um, things of that nature. So not everything was a success, but we are now in the day and age where comic books uh, can be translated into successful TV franchises, successful movie franchises, uh, and that road was paved in no small part part because of the X-Men movie from 20 years ago. It's 20 years old. Good God. I remember when there was the hype and buzz around this for it being, ooh, a comic book movie. How rare. Yeah, how quaint. Kinda. And now comic book uh, adaptations are the main drivers of entertainment. These days, yep. Yep. And uh, wild. Yeah. Wild. Wild. So, uh, if you remember going to see the original X-Men movie in theaters 20 years, years ago, let us know your thoughts. Do you think it still holds up? And also give us your thoughts on the Eddie Murphy How Could It Be album from 1985. Have you heard it? Does it hold up? Does it hold anything? Let us know your thoughts on that and anything else. Uh, you can email us info at the arcade show.com or get in touch with us through the social medias. We are on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And, uh, yeah, I think that about wraps us up. If you, uh, of course want to see or pre-order the Lego NES set for yourself. Uh, we have links to that and everything else we spoke of on this episode in the show notes located on our website, thearcadeshow.com. So, uh, until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. 